My name is Tom Shirk. I work here at the church. I've had a few weeks off, which I appreciate and appreciate your um, faithfulness here at Calvary over the summer weeks. And uh, we completed that series on unsung heroes. And I want to preach to you this morning for two weeks on a very important theme that I think will help us get ready for the fall. Um, I appreciate that you come to church anticipating to hear from the Word of God. You believe God's Word is true, right? So hopefully you have your Bible with you. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about the image of God in humans. And as we roll into that important theme, what I would want you to know this morning is that we have never needed to be connected to a church community that is biblically grounded in Christ-honoring more than we do in today's day. Being a part of a church like Calvary is good for our spiritual development as we seek to follow Christ. So because it is Connect and Serve Expo Day today and next week, I want to encourage you at the very beginning to connect here at Calvary whether it means stepping into a life group or being in some community with other people and where you personally find your place of service in this community, because it is in those steps that we all take that the body of Christ in this church will grow up into maturity, into the likeness of Jesus, which is his plan for the church. Being a part of a church community that's grounded in the word and glorifies God is what helps us become more transformed as followers of Jesus. We are not consumers of religious goods and services. This church does not exist to provide for people consumptive wares for their personal benefit without having a bigger picture of understanding that we are the community of God together and he does a work in his church that helps us grow up to be like Jesus. And then each of us contributing to the power of his work through his community of faith to transform the world and lead people to know who he is. The world needs to know who he is. And I would begin by saying you were created in the image of God by his purposeful design of your life. And if you have become a follower of Jesus, you are being recreated into the likeness of Jesus by his work in your heart as you are being conformed to the image of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That is accelerated when the church is together. That is not intended to be accomplished in isolation. So I encourage you to be a part of community here at Calvary. In fact, when Paul was talking to his protege, Timothy, one of the things that he said to him about the church was that I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. God intends for the church to be the place where the truth of God is known and understood as he's given it to us in his word. When Jesus was leaving earth, he prayed over his disciples 
asking the Father that while the disciples were in a very troublesome world, God would keep them protected in the world and that God would sanctify them by his truth and that his word was truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. So truth is important to God. The scriptures tell us that the church and its teachings were frail, were broken, but he's given us a repository of the word of God to be stewards of what God has said in his word. What the word says is true, and that's all we've got together, to be guided by the truth, to live in this world, to glorify God. Now, how do you know something is true? Today in our world, truth is whatever every individual imagines it to be. In a postmodern world, truth is determined subjectively by each person. There is no such thing as an authoritative, objective truth that applies to all humanity universally. The day in which we live in is marked suddenly that reality is what I feel on the inside. And the identity of who I am as a person is whatever internal desire or drive contribute to my self-perception. What I feel inwardly as I focus on myself is the basis of all self-identity and truth. Ours is a culture in which profound individualism where autonomy and self-expression are the highest values in our world. Each person must be true to himself. There's an author and professor by the name of Alan Noble who has summarized the contemporary mantra that governs much of our society today. It goes like this. I am my own. Only I can define myself. It doesn't matter how other people see me, only how I see myself. And no one has the right to challenge how I may define or express myself. And our society assumes that we are who we are and we belong only to ourselves. That's the world in which we live. Charles Taylor, the author of A Secular Age, refers to this as expressive individualism that each person finds his or her meaning by giving expression to their own feelings and desires. The outcome of this is that society has yielded to each individual the right to determine what truth is and what reality is. And the consequence is a biological male can compete in women's sports and win in women's sports on a national level because each person can determine who they are. In some earlier generations, the world was tethered more closely to a greater community sense of identity, whether it be a larger family or a neighborhood or a place of worship or a school. It was just a greater sense of belonging 
and connective collective identity. But today, expressive individualism is the highest value of our culture. At the same time, in other generations, did exactly this. When everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So is there anything new under the sun? No. In a sense. But this is where we are. Nothing new under the sun. But I would just ask this question and tease out, if my identity is determined by what's in my heart, what does the Bible say about what is in the human heart? And is the human heart able to identify what is ultimately real and true subjectively? Well, the Bible's explanation of this is the heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? Our hearts are, are deceptive. They're not true. They're not honest. They're not um, dependable. And Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This comes out of the heart, and that's what defiles a man. So can the human heart be a reliable source for determining what is ultimately real and true? The Bible would have umbrage with that thought. What is the truth that we need to understand personal identity? What is the truth we need to understand, and where is the starting point? I'd suggest to you, as we would always hope you would be trained to know, that the starting point for where we might look to understand this is written and inscribed in God's Word. And not surprisingly, it's in the opening page of your Bible. So if you have one, let's turn together to Genesis chapter 1. How you doing? Okay. All right. You were created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, this is day six of the creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the sixth day of creation, the literary pattern of creation changes in an arresting kind of way to get our attention and to underscore that something special is happening here on the sixth day. Prior to this, the explanation of the creation was simply, let there be, let there be, let there be. And there was light, and there was water, and there was sky, and there was light. But on the sixth day of creation, something changes because something special is happening here. God is creating mankind in his own image, male and female, Humanity is composed of two different genders here, equal, equally made in the image of God. Our maleness, our femaleness, is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. In this text, you see these two words, image and likeness, which some have tried to describe as nuanced and different, but I think it's better to take them as synonymous, underscoring the same thing, not referring to two different definitions or entities, but the combination of these terms is an emphatic way of underscoring that man is created closely 
to the pattern of what the Creator is like. Stephen McAlpine states, there's a lot going on in the creation, but he says, quote, it is not only that humans are binary, all creation is. There are equal opposites in all creation, light and dark, day and night, land and sea, earth and heavens, animal and human, male and female, and ultimately creator and creature. And it is this pattern that God called at the summary, very good. God created mankind in his image. What that means is that God planned, led us, to make humanity similar to himself. Similar, but not identical. Similar to himself. Simply put, it means that man is like God and represents him. So this question has been asked and argued and philosophically challenged, what exactly is the image of God? And it's best to understand it in two ways. I'm going to give you a little uh, two categories for understanding what is the image of God. And I use the first word that ontologically the image of God means that man is in the image of God. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents him. That's a simple way of thinking about what the image of God is. And when I say ontology or ontologically, it simply means that the essence of every human being, who they are in their essence, apart from any demonstrable show or demonstration of who they are, but who they are in essence, every human being is in the image of God, which means every human is intended to be like God in some way that we'll see and to represent him every human being. This definition comes from Wayne Grudem, whom I've read quite a bit and a number of other authors, authors, but this is his precise definition that I think helps. And it might be good to underscore that humans alone are created in a way that mirrors God, the sovereign of the universe. And humans are the most significant work in all of God's creation. The pinnacle, the sixth day of creation, let us make man in our image. So you have in your essence, in your constitution as a human being, something that God thinks of as his own image. When he wanted to create something that was most like himself in all of the creation, he created you. That's frightening, isn't it? But it, it, it's honoring. It's like that's the dignity and glory of what it is to be human. The psalmist take this, takes this up in Psalm 8, where he says, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have put in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you take care of him? 
but you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's the Hebrew word Elohim, which can be translated God. You have made him a little bit lower than the angels or of God or of heavenly beings. And you have crowned man, humanity, with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. And if you have put all things under his feet, and that, of course, is Genesis 1.28. This is a parallel restatement of the Genesis account where God created humanity, and he made him just a little bit lower than the angels. This is poetry. So like God, but not God, as the distinguishing feature of this part of all of creation. Humanity is made in his likeness and his image. Augustine um, wrote at one point, we stand in awe of the oceans and the thunderstorm and the sunset and the mountains, but we pass by human beings without notice, even though that person is God's most magnificent creation. Why don't you just look around? Uh, seriously, look around, find somebody or... Tell the person seated next to you, you're created in God's image. Me? Yeah, all of us are created in his image. That is the, it is the essence of what it means to be human. We were created to be like God and to represent him in the world. Now, the other way of thinking about the image of God is not just in who we are in our essence, but how this essence of being in the image of God is, is demonstrated or how it functions in the world, how it manifests itself, in what way do humans manifest the image of God that nothing else in the creation manifests in the same way. Again, according to Grudem and others, there are five ways that this is clear, and this is what we'd say, this is the function of being created in the image of God, and this is how it goes. There are five aspects of what it means to be created in the image of God. The first is that morally, there's something about our, our moral constitution, and that is that we are first and foremost accountable to God. We are creatures who have a relationship to God and are accountable before Him for our actions. We possess in ourselves because we are human, an inner sense of right and wrong. It's called the conscience that we all have. Even those who do not know God know certain things are right and wrong. We're going to talk about how this is impacted by sin next week, but every human being has this. Your dog does not possess this. An inner sense of right and wrong. You can train them, but it's instinctual. But human beings possess this moral quality of being created in the image of God and knowing what's right from wrong to some measure. And then lastly, in this moral aspect, when we act in a, a righteous way and in a holy way, we are acting in the likeness of our Creator. And we reflect who He is when we act in that way. We don't always. And we act more like animals than humans 
in God's plan, but we have a moral component to what it means to be human, and these things are true of that aspect of us. The second is we're spiritual, which is to say we possess an immaterial soul, spirit. We relate to God in this way, and um, we have inside of us the ability to communicate, to, to have a spiritual sense about us. What we did earlier in the service, and hopefully you're still doing it, is you're thinking about God and you're thanking Him for your, His Word and maybe you are praying to Him right now. You have the ability to pray to God on behalf of your marriage, on behalf of your children, on behalf of your work situation. You have the capacity to worship God because you have a spiritual component of what it means to be human. I guarantee your cat has never prayed for you. That goes without saying, right? But you're human, and you have within you the capacity, the spiritual capacity to relate to God. And you have within your spirit immortality. We're going to live eternally. We're going to live eternally. Number three, there are mental aspects or intellectual capacities or reasoning aspects of what it means to be created in the image of God. And some people have thought about this as being one of the primary. It's one of them. We are able to, uh, to exercise abstract reasoning as humans. We can think about thinking. You're doing it now, maybe? I don't know what you're thinking about, but, but we have that capacity to think about thinking and to, and to exercise complex language with each other. Um, again, I, I saw this illustration. Um, someone said, if I tell my five-year-old to go and get my big red screwdriver from the workbench in the basement. A five-year-old emerging will be able to know what it is to go and get in the basement, downstairs, on the workbench, the big red screwdriver and bring it back. Why? Because the capacity to reason in increasing language and abstract words will give capacity to do that. You tell your dog to go get your big red screwdriver, good luck. I, used, I taught my dog how to go get the newspaper. It took a lot, but it was motivated by fear and reward. And Chauncey every morning would go get the newspaper and then sit on the rug and he'd be rewarded. And it was a programmed thing. But humans have such a great capacity with language and abstract thinking. Uh, and God has given us this in his image. We could say more in, in our rational and intellectual capacity. We have the ability to think of a distant future. What will I do tomorrow? What am I going to do next week? I guarantee your cat's not thinking about what it's going to do tomorrow. But you do. That's being born in the image of God, created in His image. And 
in our mental capacity, we have creativity. Like God is creative, we're creative. We have emotions. We're able to feel a whole complex of emotions. Again, here's an illustration that one dad said. The complex of emotions are this. I went to my son's soccer game, and I was sad for him that he lost his game. But I was happy for him that he played well. And I was proud of him for his good sportsmanship. And I was thankful to God that he gave me a son who's growing in his ability to enjoy these things. And I was joyful in my heart at a song of praise that I heard in church on Sunday that's been in my mind ever since. And driving home, I was anxious that we would be late for dinner. And the human capacity to have a wide range of emotions is a gift of what it means to be created in the image of God that nothing else in the creation has. We are unique in this way. He has crowned us with glory and honor to experience the things that he experiences in this way that he is like. Number four, we have relational aspects. We're able to experience a depth of personal relationships, one of which culminates for many people in marriage, which is the deepest kind of human relationship. And in our relational aspects uh, is where I would put the whole category that we don't have time to talk about. In what extent does, do humans exercise dominion over the creation and rulership that God exercises over the universe? In some measure, we do in stewardship because of our relational capacity. We experience interpersonal relationships at an at a level even greater than the angels experience who never experienced marriage or childbearing or any of that. So when God said, I've made them a little lower than the angels, a, a little lower than, the, than God himself, um, this is part of what it means to be human. And lastly, our, our physical aspects. Our bodies reflect the character of God in some way. I would be quick to add that God does not have a body. He is spirit. He's incorporeal, except Christ took on human form. But as we think about God, God is spirit. And yet, our body reflects something about God who hears our cry. He sees us. So our eyes reflect something of God's seeing. He speaks to us and we talk. He, he listens to our prayers and we listen. We see, we hear, we create. These things are part of the physical aspects and also in the physical aspect is our body to create and procreate through sexual activity is a, a signal of the uniqueness that God gives the human capacity to procreate physically as the greatest creative act of human beings. When God created us in his image, these are often thought about the capacities of what it means to be human, unlike everything else in the created order that set us apart. One is thinking first and foremost, and I want you to, I want to encourage you to say, when you think of the image of God, think ontology or essence first, that God created us to be like him and to represent him. And then secondarily, think about in what ways does that happen in our moral life, our spiritual life, our intellectual or mental life, our relational life, and our physical life these functions display the essence of who we are. You have that? It's really important to get those in the right order because if you go to function first, 
and disregard the essence of what it means to be human, you can get sideways. And this happens a lot. If you measure image of God in someone because of their intellectual capacities, then what happens when you have an intellectual, a mentally disabled person? Are they less in the image of God? Answer? They're not. Or what happens if you get older and these capacities that we say, these reflect most naturally the image of God and those capacities diminish? Has the image of God been diminished? No, this is where you have to begin with ontology and then see function. Because the truth about it is, if you get these backwards, then what will end up happening is you'll begin to think of humans categorically as more or less in the image of God. But from conception to death, all humans are created in the image of God and therefore are worthy of profound dignity and worth. And so there are implications. All people display and manifest the image of God in various ways and degrees, greater or lesser, but everyone is created equally in the image of God. We don't define people by their functional manifestation of the image of God, which changes. I said that. In fact, this was the distorted rationale that prompted Hitler to eliminate gypsies and Jews uh, in order to pursue his ideal of the higher race. Why? Because he imagined, literally in the language of theology, that the image of God was not equally represented in every human being. It's not what the Bible teaches, but that every creature... Every human is created in the image of God. So the image of God is foundational for all human dignity and for understanding our true identity and our biblical ethics. So why do we abhor racism? Because every human being is created in the image of God. Why do we abhor pornography? Because it's exploitive of people, or prostitution, or trafficking, or human slavery, or oppression of the poor, or mistreatment of anyone, or disregard for the elderly or the unborn. The implications for creation of every human being in the image of God are wide-ranging. And we were created in the image of God. When God wanted to create something most like himself, he created humans. This is an amazing truth lost in many places today. And therefore, our sense of dignity and our sense of worth, okay, if you've disconnected from me for the last 10 minutes, come back for a second. Our dignity created in the image of God and our worth in the image of God comes from Him. He created us. In his image, we were fearfully and wonderfully made. And the church gathered together are people who appreciate 
that God is who he is. We are who we are in his image. We're all flawed, but we have found a savior who receives us as we are. And when we gather together to worship, he's in the midst of us. Why did God create us in his image? This is very important to understand. God didn't have to create us in order to complete himself in any way, but he created human beings in his image for a singular purpose that many people miss. Let's take you to Isaiah chapter 43. That entire chapter is a blessing in which God is reciting his relationship to his people whom he has created. But in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, he says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created, next two words, for my glory, three words, for my glory, I have created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Let's say it again. See, I mean, just think of this. Call from every place in the earth those who are my sons and daughters, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and I have made. It's a picture of the gathering, but God is saying, my people whom I call together, they're the ones I've created, and I created them for my glory. If you grew up in a Presbyterian church and you knew the Westminster Catechism, you know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And being created in the image of God is, is what gives humans our greatest sense of purpose that I was made as a human to be like God in some way but not God, and to represent him in the world. And his purpose in my life is that my life would glorify him because in his presence there is fullness of joy forevermore. And when I live according to my purpose, there is joy. So if I know I'm created in the image of God, and the purpose God created me for is to bring him glory in my life, Watch. And I go this way instead. I think you can anticipate that there'll be some dysfunctionality down that pathway because I'm not living according to my created purpose to be like God and to represent Him in who I am as a person. I created you for my glory. When we move outside of that, there's all kinds of disorder. Which is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, the mission of every believer, every follower of Christ is therefore, uh, whether you eat or drink, whatever you're going to do for lunch today, what you're going to eat for lunch, you should ask yourself the question, Can I, I, I want to glorify God as I eat this cheeseburger. Now, how do you do that? Well, you're letting me have it. I have enough to buy it. And you back up and say, I glorify God that I'm going to be nourished in some modest measure by this cheeseburger. All things freely to enjoy. 
Everything is to be received with thanksgiving. I glorify God, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, sleep, work, do it all for the glory of God. Why? That's your created purpose. And when your created purpose is identified by your feelings and not God's truth and purpose, there will be every disorder that follows. And we're seeing it in our world. Now, this begs a very big question, which I hope will lead you to come back next week. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that comes before chapter 3. In chapter 3, sin enters the world. And what happens to the image of God when sin comes into our life? And what does God do when sin impacts His image in our lives? It is sin that leads us to demonstrate to a lesser degree the image of God than he ever intended. But he has a remedy for that, and we're going to look at that next week. May I conclude by saying this. There is confusion about where identity, image, emerges. The Bible has an answer that is safe and secure. He created us in his image, male and female, in the likeness of God, to be like him and to represent him in the world. The world has never needed more to see a redeemed people who know who God is. We know who we are. We live humbly and graciously in a confused world to say God is worthy of worship. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's my vision of this church in this community that doesn't agree. We're not going to impose it. We're going to live it out in its beautiful reality and pray that God will draw all men to himself as Christ is lifted up in our church. Let's pray together. You are the creator. So worthy is the Lord through whom all things were created. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and blessing and obedience and worship and thanks. Forbid that any of us would fall short in seeing you as the great and good creator. Give us grace that we will live out in our lives a greater and greater likeness to Jesus Christ, who himself is the image of God. As we're conformed to his image, Lord, may our lives bring you praise. I pray for any who are struggling with a sense of identity today and uncertain about how to be grounded in an understanding of who I am as a person and why it matters that God is who he is and that we are not God. Lord, may your Holy Spirit Give us faith to believe these things. Give us comfort in the areas of discomfort we have about these truths. 
and draw us closer to yourself and to one another. Lord, I again pray your blessing on this church that there will not be a sense of consumption and consumerism here, but a readiness to join in and be the church who lives in this world reflecting God and the grace of Jesus as you intended. The world is so desperate to see the reality of Christ in the life of his church. So may we just be humble. Let there be no hubris in us. We are what we are by your grace, and may through Jesus' power we be able to live out in this world who you have made us to be. This is what we all pray for in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.